Oh, good morning, and uh, everyone at home, and uh, James Madison University, shout out to you guys in particular. Uh, as we've observed this summer, uh, the book of Proverbs is not merely a collection of, of wise sayings, like two eds are better than one, you know, it's, <laughs> and you're right, Solomon didn't write that one, I, I might have for somebody, but what the Proverbs are is they lay out a foundation, the deep, deep roots of wisdom and of, of a wise life. And they also lay out the contrast to that deep root. Um, and what we're going to do tonight, uh, today, is consider together what the foundation that Proverbs and the scriptures themselves are laying out of the root of wisdom. Number two, we're going to look at a proverb or two of how that's very practically expressed, that really the proverb itself is just the surface fruit resulting from the deep root of your life and where it's planted. And then the third thing is going to look at how this is embodied in uh, two different people, uh, one embodied as rejecting the wisdom of proverbs and the other living and, and being reflection. So in discussing this and particularly considering the fear of God being the beginning of wisdom. I want to begin the conversation in Israel on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus said to the disciples, let's go to the other side. And they say, hey, we're fishermen. We got this. You can fall asleep. And so Jesus falls asleep. And as you read, a storm arose. And it was a vicious storm. And waves were crashing filling the boat and the disciples knowing what this means now chances are I would too but they being fishermen they know the boat is going down we are going to die and they come running to Jesus Jesus master don't you care I'll just pause for comedic effect Jesus don't you care that we perish so Jesus gets up and he says to the, to the storm, quiet. How's that for timing? <laughs> Jesus says, quiet. And phew, calm. Now let's face it. You and I, we can't do that in our bathtubs. <laughs> you get a little water going, stop. It just keeps on going. The disciples, well, now the fear, it's gone, right? The storm's over. But the scripture says they were terrified. Why? Did Jesus suddenly grow fangs and, and, and claws? No. He was the same beautiful-hearted Jesus. But what was occurring, as Peter says in his epistle, we were getting a glimpse of his majesty. It was like Jesus went like this. With this cloak of skin, he just went zip, gave him a little glimpse as to what was inside and come out. And the disciples look at each other, what kind of person is this? Even the wind and the waves, he speaks to them and they say, yes, sir, master, and they obey. This isn't just better human strength. This isn't just deeper. This is life on a whole different Level And when the scripture says the fear of God, one of the foundational realities is 
is that we as human beings are waking up to the presence of the real God. He is here. Remember the patriarch Jacob woke up one morning and said, oh my goodness, God is here and I didn't know it. And so much of our humanity we spend living our lives when we're talking about this completely oblivious to the fact that God's not there. God is here. And we are living, breathing, having our being in his presence. This is what John said, John who was in the boat. He begins both his epistle and his gospel with that. He, he calls it, and I'm going to say it in the English way, the in the beginning God. That one, the in the beginning God. We held him and he held us. And this is so powerfully important for us to understand Proverbs, Scripture, life, ourselves. The in the beginning God. What does Genesis tell us? Great economies of words. Genesis tells us that in the beginning God created. This in the beginning God that John held, God created. How do you do it? His words. How do words create worlds? His words create worlds. And he not only began in creating worlds with power that we can't begin to understand, with brilliance that we can't begin to understand. And let's face it, we have a lot of scientists in the congregation. We can say no scientist has ever looked through a telescope, and the bigger they get, the deeper we see, and no scientist has ever seen a do not enter sign. No microscope. God made us for adventure with him. As you read closely what's going on in Genesis, he made us for adventure, mankind, and he created diversity, and he delighted in, do it, in doing it. If there's one thing that you could take away from today, and I hope there's a few, that the sheer delight that the heart of God had in making his creation and making things beautiful. And then the cap of all of that, let us make man in our image. And that he made man for his presence, to enjoy him, to be loved by him. And you look at the language of God as he's talking to man, and he's saying, of every tree you may freely eat. You know what that is? It's the language of abundance. It's the language of joy. This is who God is. He is the great creator, powerful God, who somehow takes joy, absolute delight, absolute delight in making you and me. And Revelation, uh, Genesis caps this off, this masterpiece. It, the scripture says this, and Adam and Eve were naked, they were vulnerable, and they were not afraid. You know what that means? God, this overwhelming God, the disciples got just a little glimpse and like, oh my goodness, awe. 
man was placed in the garden in the presence of God and they were not afraid. Do you know why? Because perfect love casts out fear. This is what God designed us for. When the Proverbs is talking about the fear of God, the beginning of wisdom, knowing him, the foundation of life, it's coming from the place of we were designed to be in his presence. We were designed to live in the confidence that he is good and that he is abundant and he takes joy in our, our being. Imagine living with that confidence. That's exactly what God made us for. And that is when the scripture is talking about the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And you see that all through. You can even put in the presence of the true God waking up to it like Jacob did. It's the beginning of what life is all about. And then living in light of that. But this proverb that we read, and if you have read through the Proverbs, you you remember what, as Dave and Bob have brought us in proverb after proverb, so many, they're set up as a juxtaposition. And this is how it is with this one. The fear of God is a fountain of life. What does that mean? It means God is a fountain of life. <laughs> you can't look at the creation story and God said, teeming, life, life, life. He is a fountain of love and life. But Proverbs says, the fear of God is the fountain of life, but it turns a person from the snares of death. Well, where did that come from? The snares of death. And Genesis, again, in very great economy of words, tells us that a lie came in. A lie. A lie that God is not good and that God cannot be trusted. Romans tells us that the lie about God was believed. And long before there was a fruit eaten or some other action taken, the malignant lie that God is not good and that you can't trust him gripped the human heart. And suddenly life went from living in the presence of the abundant, joyful God to a life of survival of the fittest, of I have to look out for myself. The very first things you see, Adam, now he's hiding from God. Like, literally, I'm afraid of you. That was not there before. I am afraid of you. Why are you afraid of me? I'm naked. I'm vulnerable. Who told you that? We... We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. It was Adam and Eve. And then God says to Adam, well, what happened? And the first thing out of Eve's, uh, out of Eve's mouth is, well, that woman. <laughs> Blame the wife. That woman that you gave me. And suddenly Adam's wife, who was given as a gift, is now being used as a object. Uh, I'm going to try to blame shift over to you. And the book of Genesis details life outside the presence of God, the jealousies, 
the fear fear-driven life. What God made us for was love-driven life. Be in my presence. Know that I am good. I am a fountain of life. And as part of my fountain of life, you be a fountain of life. And you'll see that all through Proverbs. And in contrast, you'll see fear-driven life. I've got to be out for me. If I'm not looking out for me, who is? And the disintegration that occurred all through Genesis, brother, murdering brother, jealousies, rages, and all of that flowed. And so we wind up in Exodus chapter 1 in a very different place than Genesis chapter 1. We're reintroduced to the children of Israel. And there's Pharaoh. And what do we know about Pharaoh? Number one, he is living a fear-driven life. The children of Israel are there, and he's afraid. He sets them into making slave labor to build storehouses. Well, what's a storehouse? A storehouse is, I'm fearful of the future. So I've got to build abundance, and I'm not going to pay you. So I'm going to shaft you and not pay you so that I can gather wealth to build more for myself. Building warehouses, slave labor. And we could talk an awful lot, and there's an awful lot on the cutting room floor for the sake of today. But we're going to cut to the point where the Lord God liberates these slave people of Israel. And he brings them out into the desert and he begins to teach them what he's really like. And what does he do? He begins with a sign, a cloud by day and a fiery pillar by night. I am with you, and you can trust me. I am your shield and defender. You can trust me. And he says later on in Deuteronomy, Oh, by the way, when you have a king, don't let them gather horses to themselves. Why? Because a horse at that time was the tank. They're going to be trusting in their tanks for safety. Trust me. And then manna. You know, what do we know about manna? You couldn't hoard it. <laughs> the Lord said, I want to teach you very gently that you can trust me. You don't have to be like the Egyptians, hoarding and oppressing others to get more for yourself. I'm going to liberate you from that. I want you to learn what it is to be mine. And what you find is the Lord is teaching the children of Israel he can be trusted, that he can be good. This is where he winds up in Exodus 34, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is who he is. And mankind had lost the plot. We were living in the survival of the fittest, dog eat door, dog. And the Lord is saying, I want mankind to know I am a good and gracious God. And I abound in faithful love. And when the Lord says to the Israelites, I want you as families to learn what it is to fear me always. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 14. 
so that you may learn to fear the Lord always. Okay, number one, go have a picnic with your whole family. Now, some of you might think, ooh, that is terrifying. <laughs> Kidding. Jesus is saying, God is saying, go have a picnic with your whole family in my presence. And out of the abundance of your crops and your harvests and your herds, eat in my presence and celebrate my goodness. That is what it is to learn the fear of God. It's to enter back into what we were created for. Being in the presence of the true God and confident in his goodness and his provision. That is what Israel's calling was, to be a reflection to the world. Now, how did that practically manifest itself? Again, you have life rooted in the presence of God, a God who is good and caring, or life rooted anywhere else. We'll take one proverb, but you can read through Proverbs with that lens, but we'll take one this morning. When Dave and Bob offered the opportunity, hey, Ed, would you like to uh, teach on, a, on Proverbs? The first thing I did was put Proverbs on a loop at work. So it was just running in the background. And I came to this conclusion that there's probably about 12 Proverbs in total. <laughs> and they're repeated <laughs> throughout the book. And one of the ones that's repeated throughout the book often is the Lord despises the unjust scale, but a just scale is his delight. So the unjust scale, you, you don't like it. Me uh, rounding up. I, no, I didn't say I don't like it. I despise it. <laughs> and the just scale, you like that? No, I didn't say I like it. I delight in it. Well, God, aren't you being a little dramatic? <laughs> What's going on here? It's a reflection of what we're talking about. Because in truth, we have never had a conversation or conducted business outside of the presence of God. And so if you're busy doing an unjust scale, you think nobody's noticing, but like Pharaoh, who is God that I should obey him? You're pretending that God is not here. And you're viewing the person that you're doing business with as, like Adam viewed Eve, an object. I'm going to use her to try to get out of a pickle. You're viewing that person as an object. You're somebody through whom I can make more profit, and you're looking to cheat them so you can get ahead. All of which is an abomination to the Lord. What does he delight in? A person who says, Lord, everything that I do is in your presence, and I'm glad for it. And that person on the other side of the table... That person is made in your image as well. And Lord, I want to do a great job of this to honor you with my industry. But I'm going to look to you for fairness. Two entirely different approaches to life. 
one rooted in God, one not meeting right there in this proverb, and it is all through the Proverbs. I'll give you that lens. Look at those, those roots, and then go read the Proverbs. Life rooted in the foundation of the real God and his presence versus anything else. So now to our last part this morning. Who is a person who embodied rejecting the wisdom of the Proverbs? And who is a person who embodied living out the beautiful truth contained in the Proverbs? And I would take a moment and ask for nominees, but for time. The person that we're going to talk about briefly who rejected the wisdom of the Proverbs was Solomon. To which some would say, huh? Didn't he write a whole lot of them? Yep, 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 he did. This is what 1 Kings chapter 9, it it lays out for Solomon, if you're faithful and your heart is towards me, I'm going to establish you forever. But if you don't, the next paragraph begins with a whole bunch of things that would qualify as don'ts. Um, For instance, the paragraph begins with, and this is a list of projects that Solomon used slave labor for. You say, what? The king of the people whom God redeemed out of slavery? The king, the God who views an unjust scale as an abomination? The king of those people was using slave labor um, to build storehouses? Doesn't that sound an awful lot like Exodus 1 and Pharaoh? Yeah. And Solomon had massive stalls built for his 12,000 horses to which the average human being would say, wow, and God says, I never asked you to do that. The scripture says that in his latter years, Solomon's heart went after other gods. Other gods which Isaiah says are no gods at all, will not provide protection, will not love you. Other gods is scripture, well, not scripture, but as someone said, man created God in his own image, and man promptly returned the favor. The gods that we pursue, it's amazing how they don't like the people that we don't like. They approve the things that we approve of, but they are not real. And so if Solomon is not trusting in the true God, he needs those horses, but it's an evidence. His heart is not with God. And then, of course, oh, yeah, the wives. Yeah. Solomon turned his heart from the joy of living in the real God. Uh, There was silver and gold everywhere. Wow, wow, what a sign of prosperity, except God said to his kings, I don't want you collecting silver and gold. I'm a giver. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. You give to the poor, you're giving to me, this proverb says. This isn't about a social economic system. This is about the joy of living in a God who's a fountain of life and saying, and I want you to be a fountain of life. Don't be hoarders, be givers. And Solomon 
unfortunately, turned away from God. But there was another son of David. And he came and he was full of power. To ruin the surprise, his name was Jesus. And as you saw in the boat, he had powers beyond. And suddenly everyone realized, oh my goodness, the Roman army has no chance against you. We want to make you king. And he says, nope, my kingdom is that I'm going to go to a cross and die there. And the disciples are horrified. What? What? No one's going to do that to you. And Jesus says to Peter, get me behind me, evil one. You're thinking like the darkness of this world. No one's going to take my life. No, no, no one's going to take it. I am going to give it. I am going to lay it down. Because Jesus Christ is so different than every way that this world works with power. This world works with power, survival of the fittest, and if I've got power, I'm going to get more. Jesus is the opposite. I don't want that. My victory is that I am going to sacrifice myself. Proverbs, uh, Philippians tells us he has all power, but even though he was God, he became a servant. And even went to the cross. He says, I am going to give my life for many because the power that Jesus wants is the power to forgive, the power to bring new life. And in going to the cross, he brings forgiveness. I don't deserve yeah, He knows forgiveness. In rising from the dead, he brings new life. Yes, he is very rich, but for our sakes, he became poor. And he's not just a model of how we should live. Jesus is God. Looking at what God is really like. This is the heart of the universe. We see it in Genesis. We see it in the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved that he gave. God is a cheerful giver. And it is for joy that the Lord Jesus Christ endured the cross, despised the shame. You ask yourself, what makes God go, this is great? Well, I mean, we get bored pretty quickly. What makes God go, this is great? What makes God go, this is great? are the people whom he has created and his son redeeming them back, his family to be his. This is what God, God thinks is spectacular. And so the invitation to us as we conclude this, number one, scriptures lay out, there's two foundations of life. Number one, life in the presence of the true and good God or life anywhere else. Now in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to close by coming back to our little on the Sea of Galilee. We are, most of us, either now or in the near future, going through storms. A couple things. Number one, 
He is with us. And the invitation is to wake up. We are living in his presence. As one of my friends said, God's not wringing his hands. Oh, no. He is with us. And he's promised us to get to the other side. And we will. And one of the great realities that we have is the fact that our future, our destination, is not unemployment or employment. or it's a, Our destination is the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing will prepare us for when we see him except that perfect love casts out fear. Second of all, we are not called simply to hold on. Hold on. You know, hold on to it. I'm going to suggest as I close to read 1 John, particularly 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Memorize that. Behold, look deeply at just how much God has loved us. And as that seeks in, John himself, in through the Spirit, will teach, will teach how we should live in response to this abundant, beautiful God who wants us to be fountains of life, not manufacturing ourselves, but receiving life from him and then letting life flow from us. Thank you. Thank you for this privilege of teaching from the word today.